Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest on today's show is one of the hottest new comedians on the stand-up scene. And I hope this doesn't make you feel super old, but she's still three years away from turning 30. I am halfway through my 20s, and I am done with this shit. (laughs) Oh, my God, I'm sick of my 20s. I'm so sick of people telling me to enjoy them. They're not fun. They are 10 years of asking yourself, will I outgrow this, or is it a problem? (laughs) Like, is this a phase or a demon? I just need to know. Like, am I fun, or should I go to a meeting? Someone help me. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Taylor Tomlinson from her seriously funny stand-up special, Quarter Life Crisis. Taylor's debut hour premiered on Netflix on March 3rd, 2020, about a week before most of the country was stuck inside looking for stuff to watch. But for a while, she wasn't sure she'd ever have the chance to build on her sudden success. A year and a half later, Taylor is finally out touring her next hour, which is expected to hit Netflix sometime next year. And as she tells me on today's show, she can't quite believe that she has achieved her wildest dream of performing comedy for actual fans of her work. Let's just say she has come a long way from her inauspicious start as a teenage church comedian. Okay, let's get into it. Here's me with Taylor Tomlinson. Boom. On the record, officially. (laughs) <laughs> so are you back in, in New York now after, I know you've been on the road. Are you getting some, a few days off or where are you in the whole scheme of things now? Uh, I am. I'm back in New York. We had the first weekend um, of the theater tour this past weekend. Uh, so I was in Minneapolis for three shows and then I went to St. Louis for a couple shows on Saturday and uh, I got back to New York last night. So I'm still kind of like, <laughs> I'm, I'm in a different time zone, like every two days because I go between LA and New York. And then on the weekends, I'm in one to two different cities. So it's, it's been a lot. I think the pandemic made me go like, I'll never complain about traveling again. <laughs> yeah. And I still feel that way, but it is a lot. Yeah. So I was, I was looking back. We, we talked, um, the last time we talked was, it was like week one of the pandemic. If you remember this, I, I talked mm-hmm. to you and Sam Morell uh, when you were doing your uh, new couple gets quarantined uh, Instagram video series. What movie do you want to watch? We can watch Contagion. It's trending. No way. Why not? Because we're in the midst of a tragedy. You need some distance before it becomes entertainment. That'd be like if the Jews watched Schindler's List during the Holocaust. Want to watch Schindler's List? I could do that. And just uh, just crazy how much has happened since then. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess uh, just to start going back to that uh, series, how did that all work out? Because it seemed like it was a kind of a, a fraught uh, situation with the <laughs> being quarantined with your with your new boyfriend during the pandemic. Oh yeah, I mean, we'd been together I think like five months when quarantine hit and we got along surprisingly well in quarantine. It actually it got kind of tough when we had to like be apart again because he went back to New York after like five months of being together every day and every night. And I cannot believe that he was not home for five months during the most stressful time in history. And yeah, it was just, it was a lot of adjustment. I, I had a moment where I was like, I don't think I can do a long distance thing. Like this is too hard for me because it is, it's really, really hard. And so we broke up for a little bit and then we got back together, uh, you know, as things were getting a little more hopeful. And I certainly needed that time for some personal growth, which is a nice way of saying, like, you had some some things to work on, Taylor, <laughs> um, as far as your personality goes. Um, but yeah, and and now we just go back and forth between New York and L.A. and we're both on the week on the road every single weekend. So uh, 
I've been in New York more than he's been in LA. Um, and I do like it a lot. I mean, you're, are you based in New York or LA? I'm in LA. You're in LA. But I did live in New York for a long time. So I kind of have experienced both. Did you like it or did you hit a wall with it? I mean, everybody seems to have different experiences with it. I for sure hit a wall with New York. I was, I lived there for, by the time I left, I'd lived there for 10 years Oh wow! and it was like, that was enough. I I feel like I got it. And, uh, and LA was, was more my speed by that point, just in, in where I was in my life. But, but yeah, it's, I mean, I loved New York and I love, I love going back and I, now I haven't been back for like two years, but. And where are you from originally? I'm from Boston. So I'm, I'm East coast originally, okay. but now I've been out here for like almost nine years. <laughs> so, so yeah, so now I'm, I feel like I've been here as long as I was in New York almost, but yeah, it's a, it's, they both, you're, and you're from LA, right? So you, I'm from California, not yeah. like LA proper, but yeah. yeah, I grew up in California. Yeah. So how are you enjoying living in New York? Is this your first time like really living in New York? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think there are so many people who are like, I love to visit. Visiting is great. And that's how I feel now. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I was talking to my friend, uh, Kelsey cook, who's also, you know, very funny comic. And she was going back and forth for a long time for years and almost moved to New York and she loved it for like years. And then she also kind of hit a wall. So I don't know how it's going to go. I'm kind of like New York's like sort of trying to prove itself to me right now. I'm like, let's see (laughs) if you're somewhere I could live. Uh, but yeah, it's, I talked to somebody last night where I was like, do you like it here? He'd been here like for 12 years. And he was like, it's very up and down. Like sometimes you're like, this is the most magical place on earth. And then other times you're like, this is a garbage city. (laughs) So it seems, it seems very all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I, so I just watched, uh, Sam's new documentary that he put out, the uh, full capacity, which made me kind of nostalgic for New York. Um, of course in that, in that documentary, you guys were talking about how you were broken up, which was kind of funny. So to, to, to that just came out now that you're back together. Um, but it's the, you know, but the documentary is really about getting back on stage in New York and the clubs reopening. Um, is that since you're on, just started your tour, have you been sort of part of that scene at all? Or are you kind of, do you feel like separate from it? Cause you're doing these, you know, big theaters now all over the country. Yeah. I don't feel super ingrained in the New York comedy scene. Um, when I'm in town now, I don't do as many in town spots as I used to, because, you know, we just started doing this theater run, but when I was doing clubs, I mean, for the first time in my career, we're like adding shows to the point where like, we're doing three on Saturday and the first one's at 4 PM. And so to come home after doing like seven, eight hours, you know, over the weekend at a certain point, you're like, I'm kind of tired (laughs) and I have to see my family and I have to record a bunch of podcasts and I have, I have all these other things that I have to take care of that are also work. And I I can't be doing like four spots a night anymore. Like I used to. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I'm in town and I have a minute, like I like to do the cellar or Gotham or the stand or whatever, but, um, I think I'd have to be here for a little while, like on the weekends and stuff too, to really feel like, I could, I could find a rhythm here, but when you're, when you're bouncing around like this, it's hard to find a rhythm anywhere. I mean, and even in LA, I have, I get texts from people I know who run shows in LA or like clubs every week for avails in LA. And I'm like, I'll be back in a month. Like, can <laughs> I hit you anything? up in a month? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is a month from now good? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, my life is very different than it used to be in that I used to have like one weekend off a month and I don't necessarily even have that anymore. So, uh, it's, it's been, it's been interesting for sure, but I feel very lucky and very grateful to be where I'm at. But I think with this job, you have to learn how to prioritize your health because I've learned the hard way that if you run yourself into the ground, taking like red eye flights and doing every possible show, you're going to end up losing time and money later because you have to cancel a bunch of stuff when you are truly unraveling. Yeah. Overcommitting yourself is, is not where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would love to kind of just start at the beginning of your career, because I think you've had such an interesting trajectory, you know, over the past 10 years or so, um, and, you know, leading up to where you are now. So 
you know, I think some people, if there's a thing, something that people know about you, it might be that you started as a church comic, which is something that, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people even <laughs> knew existed. Uh, but what was, uh, what was your material like at the beginning? And can you just talk a little bit about how you ended up, you know, performing in that world? Yeah, it is something people don't know exists. I mean, that's the funny thing about stand-up comedy is there's like a lot of different ways you can make money as a stand-up comedian. Everyone's like, oh, it's so hard to make it. It's like, yeah, but there are other avenues. Like there are cruise ship comedians, there are church comedians, there are corporate comedians. Like I have, I have done stuff in like kind of every different area uh, and seen the, the different types of careers you could have. And uh, the way I got started was not very cool, but is interesting. <laughs> And then it's different. Um, my dad wanted to take a stand-up comedy class. And so he decided to take me to that when I was a junior in high school. And so that's how I got started. But it was taught by a Christian comedian. Um, his name's Nazareth. Uh, <laughs> cannot, cannot make that up. Yeah. Real guy. And he taught this stand-up class at a church like 30 minutes from where we lived. And it was like me and like five other middle-aged people <laughs> who were just like looking to spice up their their teaching or or something. Yeah. Well, what do you think? <laughs> your What was your dad's intention of doing the class? And was he going to do it on his own and with the idea of, of doing comedy and then you kind of tagged along or how did that happen? I, I don't even know. There was a woman at our church who told him that he, she was going to do it. And I don't know if she said Taylor should do it because I was into like drama and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I remember at the time he said something like, I remember at one point he said something like, I didn't know you'd take to it like that. I thought, you know, yeah. you're a great writer and like you could write jokes for me or something. But I don't think he ever thought he was going to be like a comedian. He just thought it would be a fun thing to do. Um, I mean, he has you know, a career. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think he thought... I was going to be a comedian. He I just know. thought, that's what I was thinking. Like, he never could have imagined that you would have taken it this far from the, from the first uh, stand up comedy class. No, no, probably wishes I didn't. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's how I got started. And that guy started having me open for him or sending me to do church shows that were like, you know, not at his level or, or whatever. Cause you know, he's doing it professionally and making a good living and had a family and whatnot. So I started and the first two years I was doing it like 16 to 18. It's not like I could go up in comedy clubs. I wasn't allowed inside of them. So I was just doing like churches and coffee shops and, you know, more like weird side corporate -y things. Like it was just, it was very like pieced together and inconsistent. And obviously I had homework. Uh, <laughs> what was your what was your material like at that time you know when you're 16 17 years old performing comedy very self-deprecating I had very low self-esteem and obviously very clean and I didn't have any church jokes because I even at that time I was like I don't want to be like a church comedian and I saw a lot of church comedians like only doing church jokes and I just I just didn't want to do that. So I had a lot of like, I didn't go to prom. What a loser I am. Like I jokes about my appearance and jokes about the fact that I was so young doing it and how people probably didn't expect me to be good. And I'm sorry. And it, it was, it was really like, I watch old clips sometimes and I'm like, I think I'm making people sad in this one. Like it's, and it's a weird place to, to get, get not even good. I don't know if I even got good, but to, to start practicing stand-up because church audiences or like clean shows, they are very supportive. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is that you're clean. Yeah. And so the only way you're going to bomb is if you do anything edgy. Yeah. Does that, was that tempting to uh, do something edgy and bomb? No, no, it really wasn't. Cause I was such a like straight A goody two shoes. But once I got to be like 21, mm -hmm. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be like kind of shackled to this. And then by the time I was 22, I got fired from a church gig for, uh, and I was doing so few at that point, but I got fired from one for like something I tweeted. And I was like, this oh, yeah. is ridiculous. Now I'm like, what did that church person think they were like SNL? Like that's ridiculous. <laughs> so <laughs> I got, to you got, you got just, canceled by church. I did. I got canceled. I got canceled by a church comic. 
And uh, yeah, I had already been kind of like easing out of it. But yeah, it's a super, it was a super weird start. But I hadn't even seen a show in a comedy club until I was 18. So when I was 18, I, I went to the Ice House in, uh, in Pasadena. Pasadena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was like, oh my God, this is how it's supposed to sound. It's like the only, it's like the only stand-up show I've ever gone to and sat in the audience. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is how it's supposed to be. And what was I've been there, doing. Was there anyone there, anyone there that night that, that we would know or that you remember who made an impact on you? Oh yeah. I went, I went to see Marin because obviously I was listening to his podcast, trying to figure out how to be a comedian as most of us were. <laughs> and then, uh, Maria Bamford was featuring and That's a good then, show. yeah. And then Eddie Pepitone was on it. It was like a crazy show. It was so good. And it was like, I don't even think I laughed the whole show. I think I just sat in the back with two of my friends from high school going like, oh my God, <laughs> just like frozen, just like, oh, oh no, I want to, I want to be this instead. Is that sort of the the moment where you saw it as a, as a career for yourself or something that you really wanted to pursue as opposed to sort of a, a hobby, a high school hobby? Yeah. I think I had really bad anxiety too. And I was like, please let me just want to do the easy thing. Like I, I don't want to want this life because I know it's going to be hard and scary. And I think it would have been a relief to go to a comedy club and go like, nah, this isn't for me. And just go back to doing churches and not disappointing my family with my material. But <laughs> that, that wasn't what happened. And thank God it all worked out on some level. Didn't the, the tweet that got you uh, canceled from the church gig ended up the joke ended up in your special, right? Or in one of your sets? Yeah, it ended up in my uh, Conan set. I think I might have done it in the 15, the yeah. comedy lineup on Netflix too. But yeah, it ended up in a set. So I was like, worth it. Uh, even today, I'm as an adult, very sexually conservative. Not that I'm bad at sex. Okay. I'll have you know in bed, I am a wild animal. All right. Yeah. Way more afraid of you than you are of me. <laughs> So in terms of when you sort of became more sort of mainstream professional or in that transition, was Last Comic Standing something that kind of came during that time? Or was that a big deal uh, in that transition from churches to mainstream? You know, it's funny because Last Comic Standing, they they did a few like background shoots on a few comics and for mine, they were like, we think it's so interesting that you started in churches. We would love to film you performing at a church. And I was like, okay, but can we make it clear that I'm not like a church comedian, that this is just something I do sometimes and like kind of how I started. Cause at that point I had just turned 21 and I was like, I don't, I don't want to be branded that way or whatever. And they were like, for sure, for sure, <laughs> yeah. for sure. And that was before I knew how reality television worked. So I was like, okay, sure. And it was like the one they filmed too was like me performing at a morning service. I think I got a gig to do like a Mother's Day service. <laughs> and I had never performed in the morning at a church ever. I had only done like comedy nights they had on like a Friday or Saturday. And so it was just the most it was just a caricature of what, what is already a very uh, uncool, <laughs> uncool look for a stand-up <laughs> comedian. And it came out. And of course, it was just like, this is a church comedian. Like it was very, it was not very what you edited. wanted. No, it's not what I wanted. I don't even think I watched the whole show. I don't even think I watched myself on it because it's hard to watch yourself anyway. But yeah, it was not it was not what uh, what I would have chosen um, at all, but it, it was, a it was, it came out of nowhere. It was not something I was like trying to get on. I don't even think I knew it was coming back. And I had just turned 21 and I had just like quit my job and gone full time because I did NACA conferences and booked all these college shows. And so I was on the road doing colleges right after my 21st birthday. And like a producer just emailed me and was like, we found you on YouTube. Can you come audition for it in LA? And I flew back to LA for exactly like 20 hours, did the audition. And then the next week they called me and they're like, yeah, can you come do the show in a couple months? So yeah, I've, I've talked to a lot of comedians who've been on that show and it never seems like it was a good experience in the end <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't my favorite. I, I was, look, they were very nice to me. But also it's a reality show and it's a competition show. And, uh, 
you know, people will tell, and when I say this, people will say like, no, it's cause you're good. I'm like, I wasn't that good. You know, like I, I should not have been in the top 10 like I was it, but it's a reality show and it's a good story to be the youngest person on that show and have like an interesting backstory. So it doesn't feel like that good to get it. Cause you're like, this isn't, this isn't a, a great representation of who the actual top 10 best comedians were in the hundred they saw because I'm here. You know, once you started, you know, not, not doing churches anymore, not being exclusively clean anymore. What was that process like for you of figuring out who you were as a comedian? If that wasn't your brand, if that wasn't your identity? It was tough because I think at the same time I was trying to figure out if I was religious or not. And the truth is, I didn't feel like I was for a really long time, but my entire family is very Christian. So I didn't feel like I could, I didn't feel like I could exit Christianity without losing my family. And so I was kind of hanging on to it for a long time, but I felt a lot of guilt because I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't who I said I was and I didn't believe what everyone else did. And I just, I just didn't have that same conviction. And, uh, it was, it was a slow process. It was probably a few years from when I was, I don't know, like 19 or 20 until like 22 that I was really struggling with it. Uh, but then once I kind of just accepted it, it it got a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Was there a joke or a bit or something that kind of unlocked it for you that where you were like, this is the direction that I want to go in from where I was before? there was one specific joke. I think I just wanted to start talking about different things. You know, the new hour I'm doing, for example, there's a large chunk about losing my mom as a kid and even stuff like that, even if it's not dirty, doing like darker material in cleaner spaces doesn't work either. And I was like, well, if I can't, not only can I not swear, I can't talk about real stuff and I don't have a family and I don't have kids. Like I'm not of 50-something dude with a wife and kids <laughs> who goes to church every weekend. I, I'm just, I don't, and that's who's doing these like church and corporates. And I don't have, I don't have an hour about cruise ships either. There was a year I did like eight cruise ships and I was like, this is a nightmare. I'm glad, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I know what this is, but this is, this is rough. Um, so yeah, I don't know <laughs> that there was a specific bit, but yeah, at a certain point, I think that joke that I got fired for was a big was a big moment and the fact that it ended up on Conan and Netflix I was like all right I'm I'm going the right direction. Mm-hmm. So yeah that you mentioned the Netflix uh comedy lineup which is the 15 minute special which I'm sure was a a big deal when you got that did that feel like a big um turning point big break moment for you when you when you got that uh opportunity? Yeah that felt huge. I had been I had been submitting for the half hour on Comedy Central I think for a couple years. And then the Netflix 15 became a thing. And I don't even know if they're going to do it again, but I got the offer to do that. And then the Comedy Central half hour the same year. And I was like, well, I should obviously go do the Netflix one. Was that a, that was an easy decision? Yeah, I think that was a pretty easy decision. Just because uh, of the, the reach of it or what was your yeah. thinking there? Yeah, definitely because of the reach of it. Um, but it was weird because you you have these goals coming up as a comedian, because, you know, growing up, you're like, I watched those Comedy Central half hours when I was in high school. And so you want to do everything that you saw in high school, but then you get it or you do it and everything sort of changed. I mean, Last Comic Standing was like that, where I watched that as a kid. And then I got there and I was like, I mean, it's cool that I'm on the thing I was watching, but it's (laughs) not the same. It's not the same show as it was when I was younger um, and doesn't do the same things for your career. So yeah, I feel like there's a, there's an older generation that would always choose the longer one. You know, it's like, oh, if someone's offering me 30 and someone's offering me 15, I'm just going to take the 30 without thinking about the implications of it. And obviously there were huge implications for you taking that 15 minute special on Netflix, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the half hours, it was like, no matter how good this is, it's going to be hard for people to watch unless you have television people. and a lot of people did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And a lot of people just have Netflix and Hulu and all that other stuff. So for me, it was a pretty easy decision. Uh, and it really, it really made a big difference, um, in my career and, and helped on the road 
And uh, obviously nothing like the hour did, but it was also a stepping stone in helping me get the hour. Right. Yeah. Did you think about, you know, you have this 15 minutes on Netflix that has the potential to be seen by this huge audience. Is that a lot of pressure to either stand out amongst that lineup or introduce yourself in a way that leads to things? Because it is just like, it's a lot on 15 minutes. It is a lot on 15 minutes. It's a lot of pressure. I think I just went into it going, I'm going to put my strongest jokes that I have right now in this 15. It's fine. I know what it is. I got a real bad case of all raise your baby face. Just very wholesome. We're just round and white like a chore wheel with eyes. Men don't even picture me naked. They just picture me helping their mom on Easter. Not that I think I'm ugly, I think I'm pretty cute, but in an accessible way. Like when you see a shower curtain at Target and you're like, I could afford that. And yeah, I did put thought into that. I mean, originally I had like a different jacket I was going to wear that was like a a very distinct color because I was like, well, if people people aren't going to remember my name if they watch this series, but if they're telling their friends which ones to watch, and they liked me, it'll be easier for them to go, oh, watch that girl in the pink jacket, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then I got there and I, I think I tried it on and it did, it just like didn't look right on camera or something or they didn't like it. And I just ended up wearing, uh, like the jacket I came in on the plane because <laughs> they were like, this looks better. And I was like, all right, that's fine. And, uh, it was not a very distinctive jacket, but it, uh, it did the job. So it's yeah. fine. <laughs> it turned out the jacket was not as important as the material. <laughs> right. turns out, I, you know, uh, and also part of it is stuff you can't control, which is like where they put you in the lineup of episodes. I mean, I lucked out in that I was the, they, they released it in two parts and I was like the third one of the first part, which is a pretty, a pretty good spot. I would, I would say. And that led pretty directly to your hour quarter life crisis on Netflix, right? Yeah. After we did the 15, I was like, well, I would really like to do the half hour on Netflix, but I was doing, you know, I was headlining clubs. And so I was like, I don't know how to get 30 minutes on tape. And I kind of talked to my team about it and they were like, well, just get the hour, you know, who knows, maybe they'll give you an hour. And I was like, there's no way they give me an hour. But if I show them that I can do an hour, maybe they'll go, oh, there's plenty to choose from here for the half hour. So I sent them an hour and my manager believes in me more than I believe in myself. And she was like, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to talk to them about an hour. And I was like, all right, like that's, if you want to waste your time, go for it. And, uh, I think it was like four months we, we waited to hear back. And then I think I submitted it in February and we found out in June that they were giving me the hour. And it was like, it was so cool for like 30 minutes. And then I was terrified. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what made you so six. terrified? I just didn't want to blow it. I just, I, I know how long and hard people work to get an opportunity like that. And I have been very fortunate and very lucky. I'm not saying like, I'm not good at stand up, but I have been very lucky in my career to get things fairly early. And, uh, so that's never lost on me. And I never want to, I never want to take that for granted. So I think I, I felt a lot of pressure to rise to the occasion and be worthy of the opportunity. Coming up, Taylor opens up about what it feels like to achieve so much at such a young age and how she's had to start thinking up new dreams for the rest of her career. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. We have had so many incredible stand-up comedians on this show, including Whitney Cummings, Anthony Jeselnik, Nicole Byer, and Taylor Tomlinson's boyfriend, Sam Morell. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Taylor Tomlinson. One of the reactions to your hour that I heard was sort of like, how did she get so good, so polished, so young? Which is sort of a, which is a compliment, but it's kind of like a complicated compliment. And so I'm wondering, did you did you feel that? And how did you receive that when, when you heard that? I think I get it. I think I would probably feel the same way. I mean, most people don't know I started when I was 16. So we filmed it. I've been doing it about 10 years. But it's it's different than like 10 years grinding it out in clubs. Like I didn't have the normal trajectory. I think it's totally understandable that people would be like, what? And I'm glad that they're saying, how did you get so polished instead of why do you even have that? Like, you're not even good enough to have this. So I, I'm so fine with it. Exactly. I mean, yeah, there's, there's worse things people could say. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you had this very surreal experience, I'm sure, of the special being released in, it was March of 2020, right? That it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just sort of like just in time for everyone to be inside watching Netflix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not yeah. for and for longer than we thought we would be. Um, but at, so like, there's a positive in that, I guess. But at the same time, you couldn't kind of capitalize on this buzz that you were getting by touring and and playing shows. So what was that like for you to to have this special come out, have a lot of people watching it, talking about it, but kind of being stuck inside? It was weird. You know, on one hand, you had my agent going like, it's a great time to have a special (laughs) right now. People are just watching literally anything. (laughs) They will watch whatever is on TV because they're they're, they're out of stuff to watch. Yeah, (laughs) they're out of stuff to watch and they might give you a chance and they wouldn't have. But I do. I'm sure that helped. I'm sure it helped to be a new thing on Netflix a week before quarantine hit. Uh, but yeah, I had a lot of fear about it because I was like, I don't know how long this is going to last. Once we realized it was probably going to be like a year, a year plus, like I, I started to feel like, well, I, I probably missed my window because people are going to forget this even came out. Like this'll be something people watch for a few months and then it'll be forgotten about. And I'm proud of what I did. You didn't want to be like Tiger King. Exactly. I thought I was going to be Tiger King. (laughs) I thought I was going to be comedy tiger king. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I, I, I did some outdoor shows, uh, in the fall and then like maybe one club weekend, two club weekends that were at like 40% capacity and starting to see that I was actually selling tickets was like, Oh, that's a little weird. And then didn't go on stage again for like another three months. Yeah. That's, and then that's I, tough. It's weird. Yeah. It's, so I, I couldn't really, the only the only indication I got that people were watching it was social media, but you don't know if that's going to translate to ticket sales. So once I got back on the road in like February, um, I mean, we've sold out like every weekend, uh, and it's insane. It's, it's completely different than, than where I was before, which was like, Yeah. yeah, some people would come to see me on purpose, but for the most part, you know, People were like, yeah, we watched your Fallon set and we thought you were funny. So we came and saw you. Um, and just to be going up for for crowds that are like, no, we came on purpose and none of us got a free ticket emailed to us 
that made us go, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you opened that special, I believe, with a, the bit about being an introvert, um, which I think is just interesting, also given the pandemic and people, you know, sort of introverts thriving during uh, the, this past year and a half. Did you feel that or did you, uh, did you want to be getting out and being more social during this time? I just wanted to be working. It wasn't so much like I miss being social. It was like, I just miss being at work. And, you know, so much of, um, for, I think most stand-up comedians, so much of your self-worth is tied up in your job. And so that was really hard during, during quarantine to be like, who even am I without this thing? Like, am I, am I worth talking to even like without this, like, (laughs) Do I have to find hobbies now? At one point I was like, should I go back to school? Like, should I just finish my degree? Like, should I do it online right now? Like, am I not going to be able to do this job when things come back? Cause it's going to be super competitive and only famous people are going to be able to do it. Like I really did not know what to expect. And I have terrible anxiety and thought the worst possible thoughts and was like, yeah, if I even survive this. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was tough. It was, it was really tough, but yeah, I, I wasn't like, I wish I could go out and party. I didn't yeah. feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always wonder what, you know, how being an introvert squares with being a stand-up comedian who goes up on stage and, you know, you have to be confident enough to talk in front of crowds for long periods of time. Yeah. Yeah. It is weird. And the new hour I'm doing is like a lot more personal. And I've just noticed after shows, I'm like, I feel more tired than I was before. And I think it's just because I am, I am sharing a lot. I am sharing a lot and you forget how much you're sharing because you're so focused on getting the laughs. But then once it's done, you're like, oh, everybody in there knows more than my parents do about me at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I imagine you're playing much bigger venues now than you were used to playing before your special came out. But at the same time, you're doing this more sort of darker, more intimate material. So how has that been playing to these bigger crowds, but kind of trying to to talk about darker stuff. You know, it's been great. I was nervous about it. I, I didn't know. I'm not doing like 10,000 seats or anything. So I, I don't, I don't know that it would work in a situation like that. Um, but the one, the, the, the theaters I'm doing are like the largest one I'm doing, I think is like 1800. And most of them are like a thousand to 12, 1500 or something. So it still feels, um, intimate enough. And also like doing it in clubs is hard. People are eating chicken fingers. Yeah. Like people are ordering drinks while you're like, and then my mom died. Like, yeah, I guess in a theater, people are used to seeing, you know, heavier stuff. Yeah. It's actually, it's actually better. Um, again, I was intimidated by like the, the volume of people in the room, but it is, it is a lot easier when you have everybody's full attention, but I'm glad I worked it out in clubs so that it's so dialed in because in a club, like it really has to be funny and like punchline dense to keep people's attention. Otherwise they're going to just be focused on their, their food and booze. Yeah. I don't know how comedians do these like, you know, Madison square garden venues and huge, you know, stadiums. And, you know, is that something that you would want to try to do or does it just seem like insane? No, I, I really don't. That's the thing that, that like promoters or, or your agents or whatever will say is like, well, you know, someday you'll get to do Madison square garden. And you're like, I don't even think that's a goal I have. Like, I think there are certain comedians like, you know, like Sebastian, that makes sense. But I don't think that I could pull that off. I don't think I could do Madison square garden and have it be as good a show as if I did, you know, a few shows in like a much smaller place. Um, but yeah, I think certain people it's, it works for, but, uh, I, I don't know that I have, I have that, that act beyond the next hour. What are your sort of ambitions in this business? Are there other things that you, that you want to do that you're planning to do that you're excited about? Yeah, of course. I mean, there, we're developing something right now that again, you know, fingers crossed gets made, but is very personal to me and I'm very excited about, and we finally found the right combination of people to work with on it. And, uh, that I'm really excited about it's, it's early on. So I don't want to jinx it or anything, but, um, I'm very focused on that and more of like a scripted thing or Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I mean, all I've ever wanted to do was tour theaters and like have people come and see me on purpose. So it's weird. I mean, this, this last weekend I, I did my first show in Minneapolis on Thursday 
And I was just like floating over my body the whole time. Cause I was like, I was like, Oh, this has been in my head for so long. Like the last time I was in a theater this size, I was opening for Brian Regan. Like it, it's, this is not, this is just something I've been dreaming about for a long time. So it's, it's bizarre to be inside your dream. I mean, it's like having a crush on somebody for years and then they ask you to prom <laughs> and you're just slow dancing. Like, am I, am I going to wake up? Is this a prank? Like <laughs> it just doesn't feel real. Yeah. It's also like, what do you do when you've achieved the the highest dream that you thought? Do you have to come up with new dreams? Do you have to come up with new goals? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I do. Uh, <laughs> I have that other project that I'm excited about and that feels like enough for right now where I'm like, I just want to get this special done. I want that to be better than the last hour. Uh, and I want to make this project that I feel strongly about. And I want to not uh, go crazy while doing all of it. So, uh, you know, it's just this very long game of Tetris in this <laughs> business where you're like, okay, where can I move stuff around? Where can I stop doing something? Where Because like you do a theater tour, it's completely different. Like I've never had merch before because I was like, I'm not going to make a shirt. And everyone's like, you should, you could sell shirts in a comedy club. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going to make a shirt. Like who am I? And now, now it's like, now you have a shirt. Yeah. And there's like a tour shirt and you're like, okay, I get like, there's just, they're like sending me emails. Like, what do you want the lighting to be? I'm like, I don't know. Should we, should we turn them on? Like it's yeah, bright. Uh, <laughs> bright. Yeah, exactly. Can we do bright? Is bright good? <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to get used to it and again, be worthy of it because my biggest fear is that I, I get opportunities and then I get comfortable and then I, become somebody that everybody looks at and goes, Oh, you just kind of, you just kind of phone it in and you're not good enough for what you're doing. And you know, all those things in your head that make you work harder. I think those are in your head. I don't think anyone's saying that. Not yet, but if I slip <laughs> it all, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Um, so now what I want to do is our, uh, our final segment of the show, which is called the first laugh, which is, uh, I'm going to ask you a bunch of sort of questions about firsts in your in your life and career. Just starting with the first piece of comedy that you remember making you laugh really hard, whether it was a movie or a TV show or a stand-up comedian that you saw on TV or anything that, that really uh, made you laugh uh, as a kid. Uh, as far as stand-up goes, I'm, I'm sure someone else has said this before, like Dane Cook was huge <laughs> when I was like 10. He was like the biggest you could ever be. And I didn't even know what stand-up comedy was, but like, that's what everybody was obsessed with when I was like in fifth, sixth grade. And I do remember like listening to that Kool-Aid bit with a friend of mine during like a sleepover and we just could not breathe. We were laughing so hard <laughs> at like 10 years old. And I, again, I'm sure other things made me laugh as well, but like that, I did not, I know that I didn't know what standup was. Mm -hmm. and, and then you heard that. I, I don't even think I knew after I heard that. Yeah, I think it was, it was another couple years. Yeah. I think it was another couple years before I saw it on YouTube and was like, who they're just standing there with a microphone. What, <laughs> what's everybody sitting down for? So I just, I heard his album with friends of mine who were like, you have to listen to this. And I don't remember knowing what it was because I grew up very sheltered. So I think I was just like, this is funny, whatever it is. <laughs> when was the first time that you felt like you were funny? I think I felt like I was funny. I remember, I think it was around the same time. I think like fifth grade, I had just moved. I lost my mom the year before. I was like the new kid at school. And we went, we had like a, a camp field trip, like an overnight field trip. And there was some night where we did like a talent sketch show. And I remember I did some sketch with my cabin and I was funny in that. And it was kind of the first time I had made anybody laugh because I was so quiet and scared. And I was like, that feels pretty good. But I didn't think I was like the funny kid growing up or in school because I was just so nervous and scared. And then once I got to like middle and high school, I think I was funny to my friends, but I wasn't like this class clown. I won class clown my senior year of high school, but I think it was like on the paper for voting, it was like funniest. And so a lot of people voted me funniest because I knew I didn't stand up. But then it came out and it said class clown. And I was like, this isn't right. <laughs> this isn't what it is. <laughs> what do you remember about the very first time you told jokes uh, on stage in front of an audience? Was that the sort of um, as part of that class? Yeah, there was a graduation show 
that we did that was just, you know, all of our friends and families wanting us to do well so that they wouldn't be embarrassed for us. So again, pretty, pretty supportive crowd <laughs> yeah. to be going up in front of. <laughs> so it went well for you that first time? Yeah, it went well. I mean, it's, you know, it's <laughs> again, as, as easy as it could have been is what it was. This is a lot of people rooting for the six of us. What about the first joke that you wrote that you felt like really worked, really connected with an audience? I don't know. I, I used to open with a joke about how young I was, where I said, like, I get that I'm really young, you guys, and there might be there be sort of a generational gap here. Because uh, when you guys saw Titanic, you were sad because Jack died. When I saw Titanic, I was sad because Leonardo DiCaprio didn't look like that anymore. <laughs> And so that's how I used to open when I was 16. And that that worked because people were nervous. They were like, this is a baby. Why is a baby talking to us? <laughs> Maybe this is the, the joke that you referenced in the, the tweet. Um, but is there a, a first joke that you wrote that you knew wasn't going to fly in, in church, and but you were excited about and, and wanted to tell elsewhere? Maybe it was that one. I don't know. I don't remember. I, I don't remember specifically. Um, I do think I tried to do some dead mom jokes pretty early on. And those did not, those did not fly at all. So maybe it's those. Is there anything that you wrote back then about that? That's, that's sort of related to what you're talking about now or even in the, in the new hour? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I think, but I think even those were hard to make work in comedy clubs. I don't even think that was specific to church. So I think that took a long time. I think I had to get good enough as a stand up and mature enough as a person to get those to a place where, where that could work and be funny. Cause it's a tough, that's a tough subject to make people laugh about. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing how you do it in your special. Um, I always love hearing about, uh, comedians late night stand-up debuts. Um, and I believe yours was on Conan in 2017. Is that right? I think so. That sounds right. 2017. 2016 or 2017. What do you remember about that uh, whole experience? Oh, I mean, that was like the first thing I got. By that point, I had done a few shows, you know, Last Comic and Adam Devine's House Party and uh, stuff. But Conan was the first thing that I really, really wanted that I had grown up watching that was still something that felt relevant and and important. And it, it felt to me... Once I had that set, like, okay, I'm a real comedian now because I have a late night set and more specifically a Conan set. Um, so it was great. I mean, I had two, my two like closest, chillest friends come with me because I was really nervous about it. I ran that set into the ground practicing it and running it around town because I just didn't want to didn't want to fail. And it's funny because <laughs> the late night set, it just, it's over so fast. Like you go, it's like five you minutes. go there. Yeah, yeah. You go there at like 2 p.m. and you get your makeup done and you go out, you do it for five minutes, you shake Conan's hand and then like the show's over. Like it's, it's, there's nothing more to it. <laughs> nothing more. It's 4.30 in the afternoon and your day is done and it's, it's, and you're just exhausted for three days afterward emotionally because you were thinking about it for so long. I felt ready for it. I felt ready to do it and it went well, luckily. So. It was really, it was everything I wanted it to be. I, I couldn't have asked for a better late night debut. And I, you know, Conan's so funny and like so nice and cool. And it's just, yeah, it was, that was a big moment for me for sure. Did you get to do panel on Conan before he left or? They, they were doing, stand, my second stand up set, I think they were experimenting with like, I don't know how long they did this, but they were experimenting with having only one guest per show. And so I, I don't know how many of us did this. I think it might have been like only a few, but they did a few where the comedian was the guest. So I did a set and then they had me sit down with them and do panel. So that's the only time that I got to do it. And it was awesome. It was great. And I, I had already gone on the, the stand-up tour with Conan that he did. So I knew him a little bit as opposed to the first time where it was like... so. Finally, um, I like to give comedians a chance to just shout out anything that's making you laugh really hard now. So um, what's the last piece of comedy or comedian or, or someone you want to shout out that just really is making you laugh right now? Ooh, comedian Brian Simpson, who's a good friend of mine, just recorded his half hour for Netflix. 
And I got to be there for that to watch it. And he featured for me in Baltimore the weekend before he filmed it. And it's so good. And I think he's just, he, we started together in San Diego and I just think he's going to be so huge and everybody who sees him feels that way. So I'm excited for that to come out so people can watch it. And then in terms of things that make me laugh really hard. Oh, I, I really got into Rick and Morty this year. That made me laugh. It's, <laughs> it's really hard for me to find TV shows that make me laugh out loud really hard. Oh, you know what? I know the last thing that made me laugh really hard. So you just watched Sam's documentary, Full Capacity. So there's a part in it where Stavros is doing stand-up and he is talking about... Do you know the part I'm talking about? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where he's talking about like the how he looks. He's like, you know, because he's like a bigger guy and he goes, he goes, uh, do you think it's easy looking like this? Do you think I only want to do cannonballs? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a no, great line. I want to do other dives. <laughs> And I, I obviously watched the documentary with Sam a few times before it came out. I laughed so hard we had to pause it. And I have, I have shown people that clip. And before (laughs) the doc came out, I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to tell you this joke and I'll, I'll show you like a clip of him. I don't know. I don't have this joke, but I'll show you a clip of him so you can picture him saying it. It made me laugh so hard. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Well, thank you so much and congratulations on everything that, you know, all of your success and your tour. And uh, I can't wait to see the new hour uh, when it comes out. Um, Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I love this podcast. Thank you so much to Taylor Tomlinson for talking with me today. And I love hearing that she is a fan of this podcast. You can get tickets for Taylor's Deal With It tour on her website, ttomcomedy.com and definitely check out her debut hour Quarter Life Crisis on Netflix if you missed it. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com and if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who's coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.